Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to start out somewhere else, but we'll get to 2 Kings 4, and you'll wish you were there. So go there, and before we dive into that, do you have a minute to laugh at something? Real quick, just a second. Okay, this will probably uh, make sense later in the message. We're just going to throw these out there. Uh, Before I do, uh, I want to say thank you to our, our singers this morning. We had singers who, for the first time, had jumped in. Thank you, uh, Jenna, Simona, Amira. Thank you so much. Jenna's got working on a new album very soon. I've outed her. She's got one song in the can so far, and uh, we're excited about that project as well. Okay, this, we're going to start this morning with some oddball headlines. Okay, headlines are, are a funny thing because uh, oftentimes the person who wrote the article doesn't write the headline, and sometimes it feels like the people who wrote the headline didn't even read the article, right? These are actual headlines I found, and this will make sense later in the message. From the Sacramento Bee, homeless survive winter, now what? Okay. Some of these will be what I call uh, time-release humor, meaning you'll laugh on the way home. Okay. Homicide victims rarely talk to police. From the Toronto Star, our friends in Canada, marijuana issues sent to joint committee. Where else are you going to send it? State senator in Colorado wrote an editorial that said, teen pregnancy drops significantly after the age of 25. (laughs) Then it's something else, right. Uh, the AP News, these are, I mean, these are not like rinky-dink little organizations. AP News one time had an uh, article that they titled, World Bank Says Poor Need More Money. <laughs> now, some of you are going, oh, I'm poor. I didn't know what that meant. Uh, yeah. uh, Northfield, Minnesota, a small little town. Their headline was, Northfield Plans to Plan Strategic Plan. <laughs> that has to be a government organization. I'm just convinced. Uh, another article said, Survey Finds Fewer Deer After Hunt. Seems like it worked. And the, the last one, sometimes it's just a matter of punctuation. Students cook and serve grandparents. Okay, all right. The last one was right up to the edge, wasn't it? It wasn't over, but it was close. All right. Sometimes the short version of the story doesn't really tell the whole story, right? You read the headline and you're like, what is this all about? This will all make sense here in a little bit, and if it doesn't, it was just for fun. It was worth it. Today, we're closing our series on Elisha. If you have been with us, you know we started out contrasting Elijah and Elisha. They are so different. They are as different in ministry as, the, as John the Baptist and Jesus, okay? The spirit of Elijah that we hear about is very much like John the Baptist, but as we'll see today, as Elisha went into ministry, he often reflected much more of the nature and the ministry of Jesus. Elijah was focused on righteousness and unrighteousness. Elisha focused on compassion and healing. Elijah focused on national sin. Elisha focused more on individual situations. Elijah had 14 years of ministry. He's taken up into a whirlwind. Elisha ministers for 50 years and then dies and the miracles continue after he dies. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But in 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha moves from having a national mandate dealing with large groups of people into really what was his heart. Remember, Elijah was this big national figure. Elisha's ministry was far more connected to individuals and compassion. And 
2 Kings chapter 4 is where he kind of turns that corner into his own. And he becomes what he is called to be. A couple of reasons why that we're, we're going to end the series here. We're not going through his entire life. We're just going to do this here. Two reasons. One is because I really wanted from a biblical literacy, literacy perspective for you to understand Elisha and how he thought so that you could study the rest of it yourself and you can study out the 50 years of ministry. Uh, sometimes I talk about my Jeremiah professor in Bible college. I took Jeremiah from a professor whose name was Professor Bleak which is just too funny, okay? If you've read Elisha, you understand, Professor Bleak, it fit perfectly. And uh, in an entire semester, we got through 10 chapters of Jeremiah. And I remember thinking, there's a lot more Jeremiah we haven't touched. It's like what, I read 52 chapters of Jeremiah. And we asked him about it at the end. How come you tell us this class is Jeremiah, and you teach 10, 10 chapters, we're at the end of the semester, what do we do? And he told us, I didn't want to teach you the text of Jeremiah, I wanted to teach you to think like Jeremiah, so that you can, he goes, it'll take your whole lifetime to unpack this. So I'm not really, you know, pressed to teach you everything Jeremiah did, just now you understand how to, how to read Jeremiah. So I wanted you to understand a little bit of what Elisha was about, so you can kind of vet this out for yourself and think like Elisha. The second reason why we're going to end the series here is not because we've covered the whole of his life, but because we're acknowledging the trajectory of his evolution of ministry. Don't let that word evolution scare you. What I mean is his development as a human being and as a minister. When Elijah grants him a double portion anointing, Elisha accepts it even though he is not everything he's going to be. Okay, When he takes on that assignment, when he takes on that anointing, he is not fully what he is going to be yet, and he grows into his calling. That should be really encouraging to you. Because when Elisha received the double portion of Elijah, he still has some stuff i got to work out. And there's some growing in my heart. This is the place where Elijah's disciple to God, you know, his disciple, Elisha, became God's servant. You remember, even in the last chapter, they're referring to him as, oh yeah, he's the one who used to wash Elijah's hands. He was Elijah's water boy. And here he comes into his own. This passage describes kind of the power of his becoming, the fullness of his calling. His heart becomes alive in what he is called to do. Don't be frustrated that you are not all that you feel called to be yet. Some of you have had face-down, snot-nosed encounters with the Lord where he has given you this idea of what you are to be and you got up and you walked away and you're like, it ain't happened yet. And anybody who knows you would know it ain't happened yet. Nobody's even pretending it's happened yet. It hadn't happened yet for Elisha. What he really was called into doesn't even come to bloom until, you know, three chapters into his ministry. And then he lives a long life of, of living it. Don't be frustrated. God is not expecting perfection from you. What he's expecting is growth and development. Like that's what he's hoping for. Be glad he's not measuring by perfection. Okay? The real story of our lives and the rest of the world is written in incremental chunks. It is not written suddenly. 2 Peter 3.8 says, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forevermore. Peter's like, I'm expecting you to grow. I don't expect you to be there yet. 
Growth is allowed, but it is expected. So you may not be who you think you should be yet. And Elisha was not who he thought he should be when Elijah gave him a double portion of his anointing. Hebrews 5.12 says, In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. He's like, I'm expecting growth. Don't use this as a pass for the rest of your life. Well, you know, Elisha didn't have it all together either. Yeah, but you're 72 years old. You've followed the Lord since you're 12. Like, there should be some growth here. The Bible expects growth, but it doesn't expect perfection. If you're the same person you were five years ago, take your pulse. That's not normal, okay? Or if it's normal, it's not right because growth is expected. It is true that Elisha steps out and ministers in the public realm and he confronts sin in passages to follow this. In fact, years later, he's advising Israel and he's so frustrating the enemy that the enemy suspects that there is a spy. 2 Kings 6, 8, they say, who's the spy? And the answer is, none, my Lord, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he has some national ministry and advising of kings. He doesn't ever totally walk away from that, but largely for the rest of his life, he's ministering to groups of people one-on-one at the point of their pain. They remember these one-on-one little encounters. They don't remember his sermons. Here's a big question. What if God's promotion of you, when he gives you a double portion, what if God's promotion of you hides you for the rest of your life? You know, we've all had these words about we're being called to great things. What if that calling actually doesn't put you at the front of the stage? But yet you have a long, fruitful life of ministry and you're considered a hero of the faith. I have this theory that if there were anybody pestering Elisha near the end of his life going, I want a triple portion, that as the anointing increases, visibility decreases. Remember, Elijah was out front, large crowds, everything. All of a sudden, the guy with his double anointing is in the back room praying and ministering for people, ones, twos, and threes. If there's anybody with a third, you know, triple portion, we don't even know what that guy's name is. What if God's promotion of you means you're hidden for the rest of your life? Do you still want it? We're going to talk about Elisha's life focus. Early part of his ministry is national, but in 2 Kings 4, he demonstrates five miracles that focus on two things. Okay, I'm sorry for giving you so many numbers, but there's in this chapter, chapter 4, five miracles that talk about two things. And to clarify this, they're out of order. Okay, he talks about one of them at the beginning and at the end, and he talks about the second one in the middle. So if we're reading through this and you're like, ah, yes, that's on purpose, okay? Five miracles that focus on two things. And these are the two things he focuses on in chapter 4. First of all, that God cares and provides for you. God cares for you and he provides for you. All those stories you've been hearing as we take offering, all those are true. God cares for you and he provides for you. The second thing that Elisha touches in this chapter is that God is the source and the giver and maintainer of life. If you're here this morning, you feel forgotten. God is not detached or he's not disinterested. You don't need to beg for his attention. You have it. He is focused on you. 
If you have children, you know what it means to have your spidey senses up at all times and you know what they are doing in the room, right? Like, there is no sound in my house that goes unidentified. I can't afford it. If there's a sound, I don't know what that is instantly, I go find out what that is. Why? Because my kids have my attention. You have his ear. And that's the message of Elisha. He cares for you and you have his ear. Those ideas are presented in 2 Kings chapter 4. Again, at the beginning, at the end, and in the middle. Because of that, we're going to take these out of order a little bit. First of all, God cares and provides for you. First, uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, starting verse 1. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cries to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but a creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. There is so much going on here. The story starts on a real down note. You know, the, the woman has lost her husband. Two things that scare us the most, the most here, death and, and debt, are all wrapped up. That's her reality. And Elisha manages to run into both of them in this story. This woman whose husband had been in the school of the prophets. She doesn't actually say it, but it's possible that her husband could have been one of Elisha's disciples. My husband followed you around, and now he's dead and we're in debt. This is awkward, okay? Because she's looking at him going, now what are you going to do? She finds herself left with two children and facing losing those children because of the debts that she can't pay. There was no mechanism in this season of history for bankruptcy. That was not a thing. Well, there was, but it was called the year of Jubilee, which only happened every 50 years. Depending on when you want to declare bankruptcy, could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. But in her case, her children would have to serve her creditors as slaves until the debt was paid off or until the year of Jubilee, which could be next week or it could be 49 years away. This woman is looking at losing her children because of debt. We read this and we go, how archaic that she might lose her children because she doesn't have enough money. Did you know a form of this can happen today? It really can. In fact, there's a system for this. Kelsey and I recently went through the training. We were trained on how to train foster parents, okay? That some of you go, you're be foster parents? No, we're not going to be foster parents. We're training people to be foster parents. I learned things that broke my heart about the system. There were things that were, I heard that were so goofy that I would raise. I was one of that, that guy in the class go, wait, 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 wait. Does this happen? They're like, oh, yeah, that happens. For instance... Imagine a young woman who's got two kids. Now, we're talking present day, okay? Woman's got two kids. They are six and ten. She has a waitress job, and she gets called in for a morning shift, and she has nobody or cannot afford anybody for childcare. She has to go to work at seven. The bus comes at eight. She tells the ten-year-old and the six-year-old, stay in the house, okay? This should not happen, but how many of you know you could see this happening? Okay, you totally could see this happening. If that happens a couple of times and somebody makes a phone call, that woman can lose those children. Now, should she have left them alone? No. But you can see how it happens. But now that the children are taken from her, this is the part where I was like, wait, what? 
Now the children are taken from her. Did you know that that woman is liable for child support to the state? She's got to pay the state. She couldn't afford a babysitter. And the state will now mandate classes for her to take. She's got to pay for those too. You see how people can lose their kids and never get them back. Now, don't be so quick to judge families who've been separated by circumstances because you don't know what happened. In Elisha's story, this woman is in a terrible spot. She can't pay her debts. She's about ready to lose her kids. And Elisha, God's man of faith and power, successor to the great Elijah, prophet to the nation, grows very tender in reaction to her. Elijah would have probably condemned the state and called fire down on somebody. Elisha's like... She's still in debt. She's still losing her kids. What are we going to do here? One thing in, he just, he's very tender at the grassroots level to what the problem is. One thing that is endangering the fabric of our society is people making proclamations on a national level who don't understand the sort of pain that people have at the local level. They just don't understand what people are going through. Policies are written at the national level based on statistics, but people's lives are more nuanced than that. There are people in our city, probably within a half mile of wherever you live, that are significantly disadvantaged however they got there. They need compassion. And Elijah is moved in the need. He is so moved, he doesn't even ask her what the debt's for. Could have been student loans. Isn't that awkward? Because you're all wondering what I think about that, and I'm not going to tell you. But it bugs some of you. Well, if it's student loans, lady, go find three jobs. You know, he doesn't even ask her. He just sees her in struggling. He's like, I'm going to meet the need. We'll settle out. We'll we'll settle the wisdom. We'll send you to Dave Ramsey later. Let's meet the need. This is not a teaching point in the way I'm going to teach you a lesson. So I'm going to meet your need. Church is way too quick to jump to teaching lessons. And people need lessons. But they need compassion. 2 Kings 4, 3 through 4. Then he says, go outside. Borrow vessels from all of your neighbors. She's like, you do know I'm in debt. I'm in debt. Now you want me to go borrow vessels? Like I can't get a debit card. He says, go borrow vessels. Empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in, shut the door behind yourself in your sons, and pour into these vessels. When one is full, set it aside. Elijah tells her, here's the deal. We're going to get you out of this mess. You are going to pay your debts back, and you're going to do it by pouring out all that you have. See, she had a little oil left. She had one little vessel of oil left. That's what she talked about. It's like, seriously, Elisha, how many ways could this have been fixed but without her having to give up what little she had? Could you have just maybe reached into your pocket and paid this? Could you have blinked and oil would have appeared? Or maybe, you remember Elijah did that thing where the lady just kept pouring and the, you know, the vessel never ran out? What could you do? But he chose a form of deliverance for her that asked for her own investment. It's still a miracle, but it is amazing how many times in Scripture God starts a miracle based on people surrendering what they have a death grip on. Moses, petrified. I am not good at talking. God asks him, what's in your hand? What do you have? Can you let go of that? I'd rather not. Can you let go of that? 
I'll do more if you let go of what you have than I can if you have a death grip on it. Little boy on a hillside, Jesus is teaching. He says, take the little boy's sandwich. We never think about what that feels like to the little boy. Why am I being punished? I'm the only one smart enough to brought lunch. You know? It's like, why are you taking it? Because miracles generally require us to surrender all that we have to get more. It's still a miracle. But we can't be miserly and live in the miracle realm. You cannot be miserly and expect the Lord to move in power or in generosity towards you. You know, the story this morning. Hey, we were, we were giving and the Lord, it happened. It's not a give to get thing. It's him saying, I can do more with what little you give me than I can with you holding on to it with your both fists. Remove yourself from thinking about the Elisha perspective for a minute and put yourself in the place of the indebted widow. What do you do? What do you do? I got this much oil. I have these kids that have already been taken away from me. She took what little she had and in obedience, she poured it into these borrowed vessels and it just kept pouring. Deliverance is tied to obedience. Okay, if the Lord tells you to do something and you don't, suddenly that next step in your life, he's like, I'm waiting. I'm waiting on what I told you to do so that I can do what you've asked me to do. It is one thing to pour eight ounces of oil into an eight-ounce vessel. She finds herself pouring eight ounces of oil into a 12-ounce vessel and filling it, a 20-ounce vessel, a two-liter Suddenly a jug. The word that is used to describe the vessel that she is pouring out of is that she's not pouring out of a barrel. It's a small little pouch that they would use to, for anointing oil. She's literally out there with the anointing oil filling jugs. And she realizes this cannot be happening by my own efforts. When God gets involved, the little bit that you bring to the table suddenly goes so much further than you ever thought it would. Grace and provision expand to fill the space allotted. Your job is to make sure the space is there. Scripture says she poured until all of the vessels were completely full. Every borrowed pot, gourd, tin can, camelback, everything she could find, she had filled them. What, what do you think is going through her mind? I wish I had greater capacity. I wish I had made more space before the oil started flowing because I think it would have continued. To, the only thing limiting my ability to receive right now is the capacity that I have, which I chose. One of the most powerful long-term prayers you can pray. Pray this every day. Pray this like you pray for your kids. Pray this like you pray for your car to start. <laughs> Some of you are like, that's an everyday prayer too. Pray, Lord, increase my capacity. Increase my capacity, which means he's going to rearrange some things. He's going to compact some things within you. He's going to remove some things, but your capacity will be bigger. And when he begins to move, there's more room to receive what he wants to do. Some of us have received very little to the Lord because, frankly, we don't have a whole lot of capacity to process it. We are so crammed full of so many other things. No, increase my capacity. His power will always have more than you can hold, but what if we could hold more than we do? 2 Kings 4, 7. 
She came and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil, and pay your debts so that you and your sons can live on the rest. It's almost to drive this home that God cares for people and provides for them. The Lord orchestrates two more examples in this same chapter about providing for people when they were struggling. We learn in 2 Kings chapter 8, we're not going to flip to it here, but they're in the middle, in this passage, they're in the middle of a seven-year famine, okay? Seven years have been very little food. And in this famine, the sons of the prophets are cooking what they had. Kelsey went to Costco yesterday, which will explain the increase in the GDP for uh, Johnson County. But you know how it is, there are times when you, you should have went last week, you know, and you didn't, and so you're going into the pantry going, oh, this is going to be creative. Everybody ever had peanut butter on spaghetti? You know, it's like you're just, you're making do with what you have. They're in a famine here, and so they are making do with what they have. And these pro- sons of the prophets have made a stew. The Bible says what is in the stew are wild gourds, okay, and, and, or what we might call like wild cucumbers, These still grow along the Dead Sea today. The crazy thing about these things is if you cut them open and you leave them and they dry out, a powder forms on the inside, which when used in little amounts is medicinal, but like a lot of medicine, when used in a lot of amounts is actually poison. So that's what it said is in the pot. If you read the recipe, they had not been to Costco. There was no Costco, and if there was, there was nothing on the shelves because they were in the middle of a seven-year famine. So they've made this stew, 2 Kings 4.40. And they poured out for some men to eat. But while they were eating the stew, they cried out, Oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. That's bad stew, okay? That's just bad stew. Death in the pot, and they could not eat it. Now, are people dying? or We're not quite sure. They're in this predicament, though. It says that this this dry powder that comes from the wild gourds or the wild uh, cucumbers actually causes colic. You've got grown men have eaten in there. Oh, it's just a colicky. And it's, but it's all they've got to eat. And now they've botched the stew. Like the one thing they had to make, it's like, we jacked it up. What are we going to do now? The Bible says that Elisha poured flour into the stew until it became palatable to eat. Can you imagine... They're yelling, there's death in the pot, grown men with colic, laying around, they're holding, it's awful. Elisha goes, how much flour? I don't know, teaspoon, cup, we don't know. But at some point, Elisha goes, it's good now. Who's going to try it? No, there was death in the pot a minute ago. Why is it suddenly good now? We can't imagine that something would go from being so poisoned to actually good. We'd rather somebody else try it. Some of you are in in situations right now in your families or your jobs that are so toxic, you can't imagine it getting better. Like, you're like, no, it's just going to be terrible forever. Well, what if the Lord did something there? I don't think so. I think it's so bad, it's our forever reality. There's a quote that I read from a, uh, a rabbi that I follow sometimes. Some days you're the wild cucumber, some days you're the flower. Bullender Steen. Okay, I needed a rabbi, I made that one up. But sometimes, sometimes you're the poison in the situation. Try and be the flower. Try and be the part that comes into a situation that brings peace 
and calm and doesn't make things worse. Not everything is a level 11 panic, okay? The best thing some of you could do is just calm down. You're not helping the situation. Have you ever walked into a situation where family members were fighting and in the process of trying to settle it down, you realized you made it worse? Don't be the cucumber dust. Be the flower. Help settle things as much as is within your power. Focus on life until what you bring to the table overpowers the poison in that situation. The close of this chapter includes one last story about the provision of God where they've got 100 men assembled and Elisha's servant tells him, uh, we don't have enough food. Remember, famine. You're like, a lot of people are starving in this story. They're in a famine. By this time, Elisha has seen a small amount of oil fill tons of containers. He's watched poison stew become healthy. And he's, they tell him, all we have are these 100 guys and these 20 loaves of bread. They're small. Like, they're very small. The Bible says they were first fruits or the offering bread. Now, in normal times, the first fruits bread would have gone to the priests. But they're in the northern kingdom, and the priesthood was never really set up in the northern kingdom. But they still are a little bit religious, and so they want to pay their, their first fruits to somebody. And the closest person they have is uh, Elisha. So Elisha gets all you know, these 20 loaves of little bread. He's like, thanks, guys. He gets all this bread, but he's got 100 guys looking to him to eat. 2 Kings 4, 43 to 44. But his servant said, how can I set this before 100 men? So he repeated, Give it to the men that they may eat, says the Lord. They shall eat and have some left. And he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. In this story, Elisha is very much a precursor of Jesus. We see it. He looks around. Jesus sees a little boy with a sandwich. Elisha's like, I got 20 loaves of bread. I got 100 people. It's not going to be enough. But the same spirit that motivates Elisha motivates Jesus to take what was rightfully his. You do know he could have said, Stick those in the back. There's a famine going on, you know. How long is 20 loaves going to go? It's him and his servant. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm going to take what I have. I'm going to give it to these guys, and it's going to go further than it ever would any other time. Whatever you lack this morning, it may take all you have to get out of it. you got to let it go. You have to surrender all you have so that the Lord, in turn, can multiply and change things so first of all God cares and provides for you what little you have in your hand he gave you you stand nothing to lose by releasing it the second message in this chapter which is really what Elisha was about is the idea that God was the giver and the source of life remember I said there were five miracles but there were two main things that he talked about this is the second one Midway through the chapter, go back up to the middle, Elisha steps to the side and he illustrates that God is the source and the giver of life. It starts out with Elisha being hosted by this woman and her husband. And she seems particularly impressed by his ministry. She says to her husband, let's build him a place to stay so that when he comes through town, he can stay here. So they go and they get a futon and some, some light things. They, they set him up a little spot. And Elisha is so touched by this kindness, apparently it was not very common, even though he's got a track record of blessing people, it like really stands out to him. So he offers to speak to the military on her behalf. He's going to go to the military, see if I can get you some protection. It's like, is Elisha, is like, is he in the ministry or the mob? You can't really tell at this point. And she said, no, 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 I, I live with my family, I don't really need any protection 
So he asks his servant, what does she really need? And the servant knows, this is the pain of her heart, is that uh, she wants a son. So Elisha, uh, he prophesies over her that she's going to have a child, and she looks at him and says, shut up. I mean, it's not verbatim, but it's pretty close. 2 Kings 4, 16 to 17. He tells her, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. She said, no, my Lord of God, do not lie to your servant. She's like, don't lie to me. Don't wake my heart up to something that's not going to happen. Don't stir me to believe for something and then yank it on me. But the woman conceives and she bore a son about the, that time the following spring as Elisha had said to her. It's one thing to feed people that are hungry or to get them out of debt, but to prophesy life is a whole other thing, especially when people have come to terms with not having life. But it happens. She receives this promised child, and just when you think that all's well that ends well, the whole thing goes sideways. Like, a promise from God is usually a work in progress. Some of you got promises from God, and it started, and then all of a sudden it hit the end of the sidewalk, and you're like, now what? That's what happens to this woman. 2 Kings 4, 18 to 21. When the child had grown... He went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. And the father said to his servants, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. This is, this is hard to even read. She has this promised child, and the promised child dies. Promises of God go through stages of vulnerability. When you get a promise from the Lord, there are so many things that happen between the delivery of the promise and the, and the fulfillment of the promise. And she is in this spot where, oh, you promised, you, you promised. There's a lot of angry women in this story. I mean, first was the one whose husband died. And then she's like, you, and you understand the anger. There are things that have the yes of God on them that go through dark times. The important part, hear me here, is doubt the times, not the promise. Doubt what you're going through is permanent. Don't doubt the promise that God gave you. 2 Kings 4, 22-24. Then she called to her husband, she said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I might quickly go to the man of God and come back. She's coming for him. She's like, I, Mama is torn up. and She's going to find Elisha. He said to her, why go today? It's not the new moon. It's not the Sabbath. It's not Sunday. You're not going to church. There's no prayer meeting. What, why are you going? She said, all is well. She lied. Then she saddled the donkey, and she said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me. She goes, take this donkey as fast as he'll go. Upon arrival, she unleashes on Elisha. Is there any more, anything more bitter to the soul than someone whose promise has died? She says to him in verse 28, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say don't deceive me? I wanted it, but I didn't even ask for it. Then you promised it, and now it's gone. So Elisha sends his servant. He goes sends him his staff. I have so many questions about this story. Like, what are you doing, Elisha? Like, what? Are you like in the, he's like changing oil on his car. So here, take the staff 
And you go, the, he takes it laid across his body. The servant does it. You know what happens? Nothing. Servant comes back. He goes, staff thing didn't work. <laughs> what? Staff thing didn't work. Kid's still dead. Verse 32 to 32. I'm not, I'm not, I have no like spiritual insight to that. It puzzles me. I, help me here. Verse 32. When Elisha came to the house, he saw the child laying dead on his bed. So he went in. Shut the door behind the two of them, and he prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, eyes on his eyes, hands on his hands. Stretched himself upon him, and the flesh of the child became warm. He lays on this corpse that is cold until the corpse begins to absorb his own body heat. Until fathers and mothers are going to stretch themselves out over the bodies of a generation, we're not going to see a generation rise. He lays down on him so that he's like, all right, my body heat's going to become your body heat. My breath's going to become your breath. Verse 35, he got up again and he walked once back and forth. Let's talk about the boy. Went out and stretched upon himself again. He does it twice, lays on him. Suddenly the child sneezes five times or seven times and the child opens his eyes. Just like a promise from God can suffer setbacks, sometimes miracles happen in stages. Never doubt the power of gradual change in your life. Like the boy's not fully back yet, but he sneezes five times, I promise you, to the mother. Those seven sneezes were the most beautiful sound in the world. 2 Kings 4, 36-37. He summoned Gehiza, his servant. He says, call the Shumanite, call the woman. So he called her. When she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came out fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. She picked up her son, and she went out. This woman has a story to tell for the rest of her life, that the promise of God even endured death. I want to ask if Zion would come back and jump on the keys for a moment. How do we know, like you read these things and go, was he really dead? Like really, was he, I mean, you have wonder. It's kind of weird, the staff thing didn't work. Was he really dead? We know he was because it wasn't some kind of a trick. Elisha was not the resurrector. He was just obedient. But it was so baked into his identity that resurrection power followed Elisha even after Elisha died. Get this. Elisha raised people from the dead when Elisha himself was dead. The power of God that resided in Elisha's frame was so powerful that when his spirit left his body, God didn't. There's a story in 2 Kings 13 where these guys are out in the wilderness near where Elisha is buried. So Elisha's gone now. It's probably 45 years later. Elisha's dead and gone. And the Moabites, remember the Moabites from last week, are marauding. These bands are, and they see a group coming, and one of their, their group dies. And they, they don't have time to do the full wake and the funeral and call his parents and the whole bit. They literally just throw his body into Elisha's grave. They're like, we'll come back for him later. 2 Kings 13, 21, as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Can you imagine 
coming to life in the grave with another man's bones and you know that you're alive because he's dead but he's there what do we learn about the character of God through the expression of Elisha that God cares about your needs he cares about the pain of your heart he cares about the things that you've hoped for that you think are never coming he cares about the promises that feel like they've gone dormant and they're gone. As I've been talking about some of this stuff, some of you, you've heard promises stirred in your heart that you have stuffed back in and you thought about that for so long because it's so painful. You're like, I kind of made peace with the fact that it was dead. But the power that resided in the bones of Elisha resides in this room. And he wants to stir those things and bring them to life. Stand with me for a moment. Right now, if you are believing for something, and maybe it just woke up in you again, but you're believing for something that you felt you heard the Lord from, it was a promise and it feels dead. It's gone. I want to ask you to raise your hand. I want to pray for you right where you are. Here, here. This is one of those look around times. It's not every head bowed, every eye closed. Every look around. Raise your hand. Okay. There's eight or ten. Everybody look around. Keep your hands up. We're gonna we're just right where you're at. Down here. If you see someone with an upraised hand and you're near them, I want you to step near them and lay a hand on them and pray for them. If there's nobody near somebody, make the five or six row walk, whatever you need to do. Over here, over here. Somebody pray for uh, for Lyle right here. Lyle's running sound and receiving from the Lord at the same time. That's anointing. Okay, down here, Falgutu kids. Need somebody with them. Thank you, Brian. Okay, it's lit. something happens when we lay hands on people and we pray for them. So right where you're standing, begin to pray for them for the fullness of the promises of God in their life. Don't wait for me to lead. You ask the Lord to move in their lives. Father, will you move? Right now, we ask for the awakening of dreams. We ask for that which you have promised us to come to life. Right now, come Holy Spirit, we ask for children that are far from you, that you would draw them to you. We ask for family situations that are so toxic, you would make us the flower and not the poison. pray right now. Press in for them. Pray for them like you need somebody to pray for you and you feel like your dreams have died. Holy Spirit, come. The Lord's not done. God, we ask for the awakening of promise. For the character of Jesus to be revealed. That you care about us, God. You are the giver of life. You're the meter of needs. Father, we pray for those that are in financial tight straits that you would bless. You'd meet every need. For those that are struggling in hurt relationships, you bring those to life, God. 
Father, we want our Elisha stories. We want our stories of provision. We want to know the character of Jesus like it was revealed in Elisha. Begin to release your heart to believe for those things again. Father, we ask for faith to pour out our vials, our little pouch of oil. Father, we ask for faith to increase our own capacity, that you can do more than we would ever imagine to meet our needs and beyond. Come, Holy Spirit. Father, we ask for a spirit of Elisha to reside in the Bridge family. That people's needs would matter to us. That we would set aside the large stage or the national mandate if it would mean that you would allow us to meet the needs of one or two and change lives. Father, if there is a triple anointing and if it means we're hidden for the rest of our lives, we ask for it. If it means you'll be glorified, Lord, we ask for it. Father, come right now. I ask for everyone who had an upraised hand that you would infuse them with hope that is based on change, not just a hope or a wish, Lord, but you would break things loose in their situations. You would visit them, God. I pray for dreams in the night that would stir their heart and awaken the dreams that you've given them. I pray for change in the natural they can point to and say, look what the Lord did. Lord, we believe you shift things in the heavens and those are great, but we wanna see them shifted on earth where we live. That heaven would come to earth Father, I pray that you would make us a body of people that meets the needs of others so that they would know who the giver of life is. Father, I pray that you would send us the sorts of people that are described in this chapter, that are at wit's end, their hearts are tired, they're disgruntled and hopeless and sad and that you would use us to infuse power and hope into their lives. Would you do that, Jesus? Would you use us with the spirit of Elisha? I'll tell you a two-minute story. We're going to pray. We're going we're to go. One of the guys who's been the most influential in our lives, you hear about a lot, his name's Steve Shogren. 
Steve planted a church in Cincinnati, struggled for a couple of years, and it just suddenly exploded. Everybody wants to know, what, what, what was your secret, And he tells the story of, uh, he was working two or three jobs at the same time, church wasn't really growing, struggling, and he was going through the drive through at Taco Bell. That's how sad this story is. And the Lord told him, open the car door, I have a gift for you. And, and Steve's not given to that kind of language. That was even weird for him to tell the story. But he opens the car door and he looks down and pushed into the concrete are two pennies or into the tarmac. He's got a pocket knife in the car and he pulls out his pocket knife and you know the car behind is beeping because they want their burrito and he, he pries up these two pennies and he puts them in the console. He said, Jesus said literally said, Jesus, that's not even funny. Like we're struggling here, you have two pennies for me. And the Lord speaks to him really clearly. He goes, those pennies are people. Do you know how many times those pennies have been driven over? Why? He goes, if you see a penny on the street, you don't even pick it up. He said, Steve, if you will go after the people that nobody wants, I'll give you the people everybody wants. That happened. They started setting their hearts towards people whose hearts were crushed by circumstance. Like we're reading about here from Elijah, or Elisha. And that body exploded. I mean, two years in, they had about what we have here. At four years in, they had 3,500 people. They were at 6,000 when I served. Not that it's all about people, but the crazy thing was, even as they increased, that was who the Lord sent. They pursued the people nobody wanted, and the Lord gave them everybody, the ones everybody wanted, and you had homeless people and city councilmen in the same church. Elisha pursued those people and found those people that nobody wanted, and they were just beaten down. And he surrendered a national stage in order to meet their needs. Now, we have a unique influence. We talk about it. The bridge has a disproportionate influence. We have ministries coming in and out of here and, and people that we know. And it's just, it's, it's odd. I want to maintain a heart for the broken. If we reach those people, he'll give us exactly what we need. So, Father, we ask you right now, upon the bridge that a spirit of Elisha would rest that we would pursue those that others have walked by we would by the power of God we'd help them meet their needs and they would know what it means to serve pray a blessing on each family here bless on, on each single Lord draw us more close together we would reflect your glory in Jesus name Amen God bless you have a great Sunday.